Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The second of our podcasts on places of special interest in London, presented by Derek O'Reilly, uncovers the history of St Pancras Station and drops in on a tailor in Savile Row, amongst other things. But first, Derek is in the borough of Tower Hamlets at the Isle of Dogs, learning more about the area from historian David Charnick. Well, welcome to the Isle of Dogs. Why? Is it called the Isle of Dogs? Where did the name come from? (laughs) Well, the short answer is nobody knows. Um, Some people go with the literal answer that there were hunting dogs kenneled here, royal hunting dogs. Uh, Some say Henry VIII, which puts us in the early 1500s. Some say Edward III in the 1300s. Doesn't seem likely to me. There was no hunting round here. It's more likely the corruption of some other word. The one I favour is Isle of Dykes, because in the medieval period, the Isle of Dogs was flooded twice a day because it was on the floodplain of the River Thames. And so Dutch engineers were brought over to build defences against the river. And obviously they were used to building dikes in the Netherlands because it's so low-lying. And so it's possibly a corruption of dikes. It was certainly being called Isle of Dogs by the 1540s because it's recorded as that in shipping records. Now, the area has, again, dramatically changed, like lots of places in London. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you just tell me a little bit the history of the place? The Isle of Dogs really was pasture land, and uh, prominent butchers of the city would own plots of land, and they would graze their cattle here. And that was going on, really, until the 1850s, before the Millwall Dock was built. Even after the West India Docks at the top of the island were built, there was still a lot of uh, agrarian economy on the island itself. How did it become industrialised? What was the key factor? Well, the key factor was the docks. You had Black Wall, which is at the uh, downriver side of the island. That's where the basic embarkation points were. So there were shipyards there where two of Henry VIII's warships were repaired. Uh, Frobisher, who set out to find the Northwest Passage across the the top of Canada, so you didn't have to go around Cape Fear to get the Pacific. He left from Black Wall. Further upriver, around Limehouse, Ratcliffe, Wapping, that's where the shipyards were for repair. There was such congestion in the river in the 18th century that docks were needed in order to accommodate shipping. Um, Because cargoes would be sitting for about a month or so, and obviously you've got your investment tied up, but also it was uh, prone to pilfering. So that's why you needed the docks. And the, the story of the docks starts just at the north end of the island with West India docks. 
So the West India docks open in 1802, and then the East India docks at Blackwall in 1806, so they're quite early on. Then the Millwall dock comes in in 1868. So you've got more and more workers there, and so they need to be accommodated. So increasingly, streets are being laid out for the dock workers, and indeed, ships captains, people like that. So David, on my travels here in the taxi, mm -hmm. um, I noticed a lot of the streets have exotic names. Cuba Street, for example. Does that have any relevance to what would have been going on there? The authentic streets do. They refer sometimes to the uh, particular companies that dealt with certain countries, and so they would accommodate their ship's captains in terraces of houses there. Or alternatively, it may be to do with the particular areas of the docks where certain cargoes are brought ashore. But there are also less authentic streets with uh, nautical names that owe their existence to the uh, development of the area in the 80s. Right, so Marsmaker Road and Spindrift Avenue and all these, they're sort of new. Absolutely, they're far from kosher. The Docklands Light Railways had a profound effect on the area, enables people to get out here. Well, the Docklands Light Railway, the DLR, which came into being in 1987, was um, the salvation of the area, really, because it wasn't really served by anything except a couple of bus routes. And if you're building an enterprise zone and you're trying to attract big business, you don't want them getting the bus. No. And so uh, a computerised light railway uh, was the answer. And it has extended significantly. It goes right out across the Lee to Beckton and places like that and the Excel Centre around the Royal Docks. Oh, yeah. And nowadays goes under the river to Greenwich because originally it actually terminated at Island Gardens at the bottom of the island and you had to walk through the foot tunnel. Ah, let's talk about the foot tunnel. I've never actually walked through it. Well, Greenwich foot tunnel uh, was there to replace the old ferry. Right. If you go down to Island Gardens Station, nearby there's a pub that commemorates the old ferry yeah. that used to go across. Primarily a horse ferry to transfer people's horses across, uh, but also used by pedestrians. But you need a more permanent crossing, and the foot tunnel provided that. So, one of the ways that people obviously get out here is at the back of my taxi. Mm -hmm. But another pleasurable way to come out is on the river taxi. Oh, yes. The river taxis essentially are taking us back in time because the Thames was the main transport artery before the 20th century. And <clears throat> as I understand it, the first proper commuting done by river was when the Daily Telegraph newspaper moved from Fleet Street to Docklands. Okay. And they established a river taxi for their uh, employees to come from Fleet Street out to Docklands and back again. But uh, it's become an increasingly popular way to uh, move from the island uh, into the city and back again. In fact, your reach goes all the way from Richmond upriver in Surrey all the way down to Greenwich. The services are fairly frequent and quite inexpensive. And you're waiting by the river, which is an attractive place to wait anyway. And there's no traffic jams yet on the river? Uh, not just yet. No. no, not like there were in the 18th century. <laughs> <laughs> Twenty years ago, this was a place you really didn't want to be. It was dark, dreary and dangerous. If you drove through it, you put the locks on your doors. Now the place has been totally transformed. Far cry from today, when tourists from all over London and all over the world, in fact, are quite happy to be taken here. Granary Square itself was actually a canal basin and the 1,000 water jets are actually a reminder of its past. It is surrounded by various different heritage buildings. The most famous one and iconic one is the Granary Building. 
which is now home to Central St Martin's College of Art and Design. Around it, you have other buildings, such as the Fish and Coal Building, next to the Regent's Canal, Coal Drops Yard, which is where 8 million tonnes of coal would come down to London every year. The granary itself stored wheat and grain. And then there's various different buildings that were used as offices, such as Regeneration House, which is now home to the House of Illustration. Our restaurants are great, and there's lots of them. On Granary Square, we have the Lighterman. It's a building by Stanton Williams, and it's on various levels. So it's great for people watching on Granary Square, but also for a drink on the canal. We have the ever-popular Deschum on Stable Street, Grain Store, headed by chef Bruno Loubet, Caravan, who were the pioneers here, the first restaurant to open, and then we have a variety of other restaurants. And has the development of the area finished, or is this ongoing? So the development is very much ongoing. We are going to have 60 shops in uh, what was the Coal Drops, which is being refurbished and reinvented by London's Thomas Heatherwick. So he is well known for redesigning the red buses and also the cauldron for the London Olympics. So I think it's going to be an amazing place to shop. With some Pancras International on our doorstep, you've got Eurostar connections to 10 major cities in Europe, including Paris, Brussels, now even Amsterdam. The world-famous James Smith & Son umbrella shop was founded in 1830 and it is still owned and run as a family business. For 175 years, the company has been making umbrellas, sticks and canes for both ladies and gentlemen and their reputation as the home of the London umbrella is well justified. The historic and beautiful shop is on New Oxford Street in the heart of Holborn and is a stunning reminder of the Victorian period. The shop retains the original fittings designed and made by the master craftsmen employed by the business and is a work of art in itself. It has remained virtually unaltered in 140 years. On our way to our next destination, we will pass the statue of Prince Albert at Holborn Circus. It is known to taxi drivers as the politest statue in London, due to Albert sitting on his horse docking his cap to passers-by. I'm uh, Ray Stowers, and this is my business, Stowers London. Totally about 33 years I've been working on Savile Row, and I would say, honestly, in about the last year, I've really sort of pinpointed what my vision of Savile Row should be. So we are quite different to the other shops. Uh, my thing is we make everything and anything. We make a wardrobe for people, rather than just be classified as bespoke tailors. You style, design, advise people when to wear it, when not to wear it. So we'll make you your business suit, uh, dinner suits, morning suits, all the usual stuff. But I'll make you a crocodile jacket. I'll get someone come in and I want to do a fancy lining. I want to do something <laughs> fancy because I, I really want to give someone something individual. We'll still make them a you know classic suit, but we'll make them something a bit fun as well. There's one for you, Derek. This is a jacket for someone. So oh, the dress is in London. So people will come to you and ask for a. A specific lining? Yeah, we have them uh, streets, maps, money, all sorts. We have 
thousands, you know, probably 10,000 fabrics there. And we're looking for new ones all the time. Ray, I noticed that this is a little bit more fitted than some of your other suits. Is it ladies tailoring? Yeah, with, with the ladies, we make any style, any design, uh, fashion pieces, classic pieces. Same principle as men, but a little bit more fashion-led. Really, the beauty of our business is everything is transportable. A couple of weeks back, I was in LA, New York. We go to the Middle East, Kazakhstan, Russia, anywhere. The way it works, I can, you know, meet a customer here today and then fit them next week in Moscow. Right. So it gives you that complete flexibility. Any trip to King's Cross wouldn't be complete without a visit to the Canal Museum. The canals played an integral part in the industrial growth of this area of London. I'm with Chair of Trustees Martin Sack to find out more. I know a lot about the roadways in London, but I know very little about the waterways. The waterways actually go back many centuries, and the River Lee navigation is one of the first semi-artificial waterways that has been carrying goods into London from the northeast. The Regent's Canal that we are next to here was finished in 1820. So one of the latest canals in the UK to be built. Were the canals rivals to the railways or do they sort of work together? Well, there was a bit of each really. Um, there was quite a lot of canal and uh, railway interchange in London. So traffics were carried between the two, particularly coal coming down from the north and transferred to canal boats for local distribution. What's the sort of story with the canal now? I mean, is it still used for transportation uh, or...? Well, no, with some very limited exceptions, uh, the canal is not used for commercial traffic, but the canal is used a great deal for leisure. There's also quite a large residential community living on boats in London. Are the exhibits permanent or do you, are they transient? And We have a bit of each. Most of the exhibits are permanent but we do have a programme of temporary exhibitions here. So at least twice a year, we change the temporary exhibition to give people something to come back for. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And what can you tell me about some of the artifacts that house within the museum? The centerpiece here is the narrowboat Coronis. Partly a reconstruction, but it's an original hull of a typical 1930s narrowboat for long-distance carrying of goods. The reconstruction of the cabin is the thing that fascinates visitors young and old, especially the children, really, because they go in there and they think, well, where did people live? It's a, a tiny space for people who lived in incredibly cramped conditions that we would consider completely unacceptable today. Having a wander around the museum, I notice a lot of brightly coloured artefacts. Is there a reason behind that? I don't know if there's a reason, but it's certainly a tradition that the boats and all sorts of things that went on the boats were brightly painted. Water cans and spoons and pots and pans and yeah, things. That's what I all kinds of things were decorated with this tradition of roses and castles painting, which is carried on to this day. And then I went upstairs to the first floor and I saw the horse. Oh, uh, you met the tracks. horse? Yes. Well, the horse has a name. We call her Henrietta. Oh, right. But horses were used for pulling boats on the canals and they were also used for delivering goods. Our building was originally an ice warehouse, uh, but it was turned into stables for ice cart horses. Internal combustion engines didn't come onto boats until 1911. So before that, the horse was the only way apart from the occasional steam tug. When the horse um, started getting its marching orders, it was the Bollander engine that took over, and we've got one of those very early canal boat engines on display. So horses played a really, really important role, and their upkeep and they, their care is a really important part of the canal story. The only floating boat that we've got here in the museum Bantam 4. This class of tug was built for canal maintenance mainly, uh, and it's a pusher tug. It's got two wooden buffer beams at the front and is used to couple up to a large barge, which would normally be full of spoil from maybe dredging or something like that. Uh, and then this tug would maneuver that and move it around.
Within the museum we explore the ice trade, the use of ice cream and the selling of ice cream, and we introduce you to Carlo Gatti, who we were very thrilled, in effect, to have him as, as part of our history. He came over here uh, to open a string of restaurants, but he also built his business. They imported ice from Norway by sailing ship across the North Sea. They brought it into Limehouse, came up to our landing stage here, and then they transported that ice into what we call ice wells, huge holes in the ground. Once the ice was put into storage, was there a lot of wastage? I have seen figures quoted between 5 and 30% losses. I think that where we are in the, in the trade in this part of the, the world, uh, it will be the 5% end. Once it was here, once it was stored in the ground, the, the, the ground would freeze. Right, uh, I see. And so there will be very little in the way of losses once it was in the ice wells. Obviously it was a business, so they, they must have sufficient yeah. left yeah. at the time it got there for them to still be able to sell it to make a profit. Each day they would load carts to sell that ice to hospitals, hotels, restaurants. The uh, Italians introduced ice cream to, to Britain and Carlo Gatti was one of these. He obviously sold ice cream in his restaurant, but he also sold it on the streets. Uh, it's fascinating that something we take for granted today was so important, you know, in the sort of 1800s. On my travels around Hampstead, I discovered a hidden gem tucked away on the heath. Golders Hill Park's landscape grounds contain beautiful plant displays, which include the peaceful Mediterranean water gardens a popular cafe and a bandstand. There is also a variety of leisure facilities which includes a small zoo, which is the only place in London where you can see reindeer. Located on the west side of the heath, Golders Hill Park was open to the public in 1898 and has been managed as a discreet and historically important part of Hampstead Heath by the City of London since 1989. Located inside the north entrance of Golders Hill Park is a very sweet fountain called Boy with a Fish by renowned sculptor Mark Wilfred Batten. Within Golders Hill Park there is a fantastic walled garden which is currently being transformed with a new planting scheme and refurbishments. The new design uses a broad palette of planting in all of the beds giving a new unity and a greater overall impact on the space. Clipped cubes of evergreen oak trees will emerge from the box planters, giving an imposing architectural presence in the winter months. The evergreen oak, native to the Mediterranean, will link this garden with the existing Mediterranean garden, and new views will open up through the borders and across the park to the bandstand. An interesting feature, and a habitat for wildlife, is the Golders Hill Park Stumpery. A stumpery is an artistically arranged collection of tree stumps, planted with ferns and woodland plants, which develops the right conditions for mosses and lichens to flourish. The stumpery is located in an area previously occupied by low-grade amenity planting and is designed as a natural sculpture. It provides nesting and feeding sites for insects and birds and has plenty of hiding places for small mammals such as squirrels and hedgehogs. 
The first stumpery in the country was built in 1856 at Bidolph Grange Gardens in Staffordshire and is now managed by the National Trust. They became popular in Victorian gardens but later fell out of favour. However, they have now once again become fashionable in part due to His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales who recently created his own stumpery. The Hampstead Pergola and Hill Garden is a wonderful example of faded grandeur and is undeniably one of London's hidden treasures. It is essentially a raised walkway, overgrown with vines and exotic flowers. The pergola dates back to 1904, when Lord Leverhulme, a wealthy philanthropist and lover of landscape gardening, purchased a large townhouse on the heath called The Hill. Over the following year, Lord Leverhulme expanded his estate by acquiring the surrounding land, and with his newfound space, he decided to build a legacy, his pergola. Unfortunately, after Lord Leverhulme's death, the pergola went into a slow decline, and to this day is still a shell of its former opulence. However, what it lacks in sparkle and shine, it more than makes up for in atmosphere. Today, the pergola and hill gardens are distinctive, moody and eerie. The sense of faded grandeur is everywhere and even with the recent restorations, it hasn't lost this unique character. My next stop is to meet renowned florist, Judith Blacklock. And I'm hoping she might even teach me how it's done. I'm here in my flower school in Belgravia Knightsbridge, in Kinnerton Place South, a cosy little muse just minutes from the busy traffic of Knightsbridge and, of course, all the designer's shops. I've been here for 16 years, but prior to this, many years ago, it was a garage, and then before that it was stables for horses. Well, I'd been teaching flowers for many years uh, in colleges and in, in barns where I live, and I was offered these premises, and I thought it would be a most wonderful place to continue my career as flowers, but to teach actually here in Knightsbridge, which is the most beautiful location, and everyone just feels a sense of joy when they come walking down the mews and they see the flowers, and then it's just a pleasure to teach them as well. I've arranged flowers for many venues around the world. Here in London, I've arranged flowers at Kensington Palace. I've arranged uh, for the livery companies, uh, for the Guildhall, for celebrities, royalties, it's been a pleasure to do them all. I've travelled extensively across the world to the Americas. Um, I've been many times to Atlanta and worked with the garden clubs there. I've been to Turkey, I've been to Canada, and I've recently just returned from two weeks in China, where I was lecturing at the university there. And here at the school, I teach people from around the world. It's a very international school. And at the last class I gave, I had nine different nationalities and 13 people, so it was great. I ran courses for everyone. As long as they've got a passion for flowers, it's easy to teach them. So if people come and they want to have a career in flowers, I can teach that in two weeks, every aspect from the practical side to the business side. And for people who just want half a day or a day of pleasure, they come and they learn and take away some wonderful designs which they've created. It's so easy to teach because people have that passion, they want to learn, and so it's very easy to convey that material over to them so that they can do it successfully themselves. 
I think one of the most important pleasurable parts of teaching flowers is that the, how much pleasure people get from doing it. They come here and they think they're not creative, but they love flowers. And it's being able to transmit my knowledge so that they go away confident that they can succeed with whatever they do. Judith was kind enough to take on her biggest challenge, namely teaching me to arrange flowers. What we're going to create is a table centrepiece, so it needs to be looking good from all the way around, 360 degrees, and you're aiming all the stems from the very heart of the foam that you can see. When you're doing a design like this, lift it up from time to time and look at it so that your eye is level with the rim and just check that you haven't put all the plant material in the top bits, top two thirds, and ignored the bottom third. I'm enjoying it immensely, and as I say, the, the smell of the rosemary has almost made my day. So I'm going to take um, a red rose and just place it dead centre. I always suggest you place about halfway down or slightly lower, and you see what a beautiful emphasis that gives yeah. there. quite addictive this once you get started isn't, isn't it, it? <laughs> you, you lose yourself and it yeah it. and the whole world outside absolutely. just become important yeah. it's 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 very it therapeutic i think it is and the other thing is you start getting carried away because you realize you're actually creating something yeah and it doesn't matter that it's not going to last forever it's just the pleasure of the moment yeah by keeping them all that same length, you end up with something really cohesive and keeping to the outline created with the first placements of stones, you get those proportions. Just, just do that, just like that. Yeah, I can see already this, I can see some places where it's disproportionate. Right, and then yeah. keep turning around. I'll deal with it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.